This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about big company tax, the Arias, the Matildas pay, Kimmy K in Northwest, students climate strike and GPs pulling back on bulk billing. But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the actual news, what is your personal headline of the week. I think we may have the same personal headline, which is that we actually went to a like a Bumble event last week and it was such a fun night. <laughs> Can you tell? I think our contributions really reflect our respective personality we, types. We gave big small talk in our <laughs> Yeah, we really like, gave the vibe. So they had this beautiful dinner and I've never been to an event like this. Before. Like this was probably the first thing I'd been invited to that was like from a brand and I was like, yeah. wow, like so excited to be here. And they were giving info on their research like yeah. during the dinner. So we'd have a bit to eat and then they'd get up and they'd talk through some of the findings that they've had on relationships and love through their app. And it was really interesting. And they were kept like encouraging people at the dinner to like contribute with anecdotes yeah. or like contribute or put their hand up. Like it was a bit interactive. And one of the first times they did it, and Chantelle Otten was was running this as well, and she was like, has anyone been on a date with a guy that loves sport? Or like, <laughs> has anyone been on a date with a sporty guy? And my hand like shot up because I thought everyone's hand would yeah. shot. Like, hasn't doesn't everyone like sport? Like, I was so confused. And I looked around and I was like, oh, only I have my hand up right no, now. No, I mean, I think it was more like I knew they were looking for contributions. <laughs> so I didn't think it was like a survey of the room. I thought they wanted someone with an anecdote. So your hand shoots up with the confidence of the thousand sons. Like, it's just so I aggressive. I thought it was a show of hands situation. But I just want to get up and talk about a date. But I didn't have a story either. Yeah, I know. So. I know. <laughs> I had no story. I was like, yeah, no. What? what? And so Chantel goes... You have a story. And I go, no, I don't. And she's like, get up. And so I have to stand so up. Everyone's like, stand up. I'm like, Sarah, stand up. Take that microphone. And so I like get up holding this microphone. And I just am like, um, I just really like rugby boys. And, and everyone, everyone cheers. Everyone like gives Sarah like a standing O like, for the contribution. Rugby boys. And I was like, thank you. Thank you, everyone. That's all I had to say. Like yeah. sat back down. Everyone's like, that was what was the point of that? And then they, the next question was about like beliefs and values and like how that is in like a cross section with relationships. And they give Hannah the mic and Hannah just like grandstands with possibly like, like a good five minute speech. That's like truly <laughs> sounded like it was rehearsed beforehand. Like it was almost scripted. She was, it was so articulate. And then like hands the mic back. And I was like, if you compare our contribution. But honestly, I, 
The other thing when we left was I was like, but we both agree. I also have a big thing for rugby boys and you also agree with me because I was basically talking about like how people present their like political views on dating apps and how that's not always like really a good thing to categorize someone by and blah, blah, blah. But also they were like, I didn't put my hand up. They were like, Hannah, I think this is your sphere. Take the mic. And I was like, oh, my God. I've had a few wines by this point. So, yeah, I did go on for five minutes. And I was like, it's time. It's time to shine, baby. But we were sitting next to each other. And at the end, we were just like, that is big small talk, plain and simple, the brand. But we also, the Venn diagram is Venn diagramming between Sarah and I. So it was such a fun dinner. And really, it was really, it was really, really insightful. I it loved was. it. All right, let's get into the stories. Let's get into it. According to new data from the Australian Tax Office, you spent more on sex toys, hot chips and even chewing gum than 800 large companies paid in income tax in the 2021 to 22 financial year. Mm-hmm. This comes from new data released in the ATO's Tax Transparency Report, which covers 2,713 corporate entities. So the data basically reveals that while the amount of tax collected increased due to these like skyrocketing mining company profits and higher oil prices over the, that year, there was still 31% of large companies, so about 830 companies, that mm. did not pay a cent of tax. It's zero. Z- like zero. They paid zero We're not dollars. talking close to zero and that being a large number because it's the way we're dealing in the billions here. It is zero dollars. Multi-million dollar companies. But it also isn't like, I think people think mining it's not those like Rio Tinto and BHP were the largest payers of tax because they had the largest profits Mm. what we're talking about is companies like Qantas who reported a total income of 9.3 billion but pay attention to the fact that that's income not profit and Virgin Australia brought in 2.3 billion but neither paid income tax in the 2021-22 financial year and Australia's casino giants both Crown and Star Entertainment Group also paid no income tax and realistically the the reason for that is that each of these businesses had massive losses during COVID-19. And so they're actually paying off debt right now. So they're not recording profits. Uh, so COVID-19 lockdowns and regulatory requirements for the casino groups eliminated their profits for a second consecutive year, despite reporting $2.25 billion in income and $1.5 billion in income, respectively, for those two groups. So when people are thinking about how this is actually happening, there are a few reasons, including like sometimes with casinos, they have to pay regulatory requirements and they're really complex obstacles. So they obviously have to pay more towards those things. But I want to clarify like what some of the reasons are, even though we don't know the breakdowns of these individual companies. So it doesn't mean they're engaging in legal activity. Like just because we're seeing these numbers and thinking no tax, they're actually usually following all of the guidelines and rules. Mm. So the question really I think for people when we're thinking about this is it's not that these companies are committing fraud or committing illegal activity. It's more about a question of how our tax system is structured in Australia and whether it's right or whether it's benefiting these companies too much. So companies are taxed on their profits, not their gross income. They also have the ability to claim deductions just as we do each year. So while we don't have the specific spreadsheet for these companies, what we are seeing is that they're recording massive gross income but then eliminating that income through the... either the claims claiming everything back or paying off their debts so exactly as I said before Qantas and Virgin respectively we can see they're actually paying off so I think Qantas went from like 7 billion in debt to 4 billion in debt during this year because they're paying so much of it down but it means they're not recording an income and therefore not being taxed Mm. So I guess the question is, like, as much as we see zero dollars and we're like, how can that be possible? I think the question comes back to more what they can claim and how the tax system is structured, because this is all legal. No, 100%. And I think with our tax system, especially for these big companies, there's some really obvious 
loopholes in yes. it, like really gaping loopholes yes. that most companies use. Yeah. And like I was reading like the ATO's transparency report and I was reading, you know, they were saying there's not like an error margin here. They are looking closely at what these companies are doing. It's not like they're committing fraud under like, under the no. microscope because obviously they are doing everything above board. And yes, some of them might not be, but it, it means that our tax system allows this behaviour. Mm. It allows them to make these massive claims and deductions. And I guess the question is like, is our government coming down hard enough on these companies and should they be paying more? I would argue yes. It's a lot. 31% of large companies in Australia are paying $0 income tax. That's, That's a gaping, huge. gaping hole. The ARIA Awards happened last week and it's safe to say the whole event was a step up from previous years, which isn't saying a lot, but still. (laughs) I love it. So the event was hosted at the Horton Pavilion in Sydney and it was hosted by Brooke Boney and Tommy Little. Kind of mixed reviews. Interesting. (laughs) I don't know. To be fair, I didn't watch the whole event. But I wanted to run through a few of the major wins. Genesis Owosu claimed the coveted Album of the Year award for Struggler and was also Best Hip Hop and Rap. Troy Sivan cleaned up with four awards, including Best Solo Artist. Kylie Minogue's Padam Padam won Best Pop Release. That song is hysterical to me. I've never heard it. You never heard Kylie Minogue's... What? Maybe I have. I don't know. It's the weirdest song in the world. You were just going to perform it for me. That was me performing. Oh, sorry. Okay. When you listen to the song, that'll make sense. <laughs> and it's the hand movement. Padam, padam. G Flip won Best Live Performance, and she was also there with Chriselle. And Taylor Swift won Most Popular International. She also sent in a video. Oh, slay. We got Taylor Swift in we the story. We got Taylor Swift in a video. Also, a late Australian music producer and promoter, Michael Gadinsky, got his own award this year for Breakthrough Artist, and that was won by Teenage Dad. Also, fun fact, Dolly Parton made a guest appearance via video to present the Country Music Award. So weird. This is good, though, from them. Like, I listened, I was like, oh, that's some big wins Mm. from, like, Dolly, Taylor, Troy Savans, obviously gaining a lot of momentum. Also, Nine has been commended for instead of running the usual minimum four-hour live stream, they instead decided to slightly delay the airtime and deliver an edited version that was like a tight two hours. Oh, I love that. Way more enjoyable oh, to watch. are painful. I also wanted to compare that this year was a lot better in comparison to last year because last year was like described, if you look at like articles from last year, it was like a comedy of errors. Oh. And the fatal flaw they did last year was that they decided to put all the food and drink outside. So, meaning the majority of people spent the majority of the event outside of the venue entirely. And then they put stuff, like, right at the door. So then people would stand at the door getting drinks because that was, like, the only indoor bar. And they'd all be, like, getting more and more drunk and talking to each other. And it started to drown out what was happening on stage. That's awful. (sighs) So dumb. I know. But, like, surely you could see that from a mile away. Right? Yeah. Regardless of the improvements this year, though, I noticed that the ratings just weren't great. No, it's worse than last year. Just 238,000 tuned into Nine's broadcast. This is the lowest viewing audience ever, which at first you're like, is that Nine's fault? Is that the Aria's fault? Maybe because the other events haven't been like amazing in past years, but I would actually argue, and this could be controversial, but I think it's more the fact that Australians don't actually care as much as they should about Australian music. No. 
Which is insane because we have this a great music scene here, but people just don't get as excited about it as they should. And there was only two Aussie songs in the entire top 50 in Australia. That's Troy Sivan's One of Your Girls and Riptide by Vance Joy, which came out in 2013. That's really interesting to me. I mean, I'm not surprised because I know that um, my music listening habits are not Australian-based. But also, my thought immediately when we were were saying this question about whether it's Nine Thought or the Aria's fault, I completely agree with your take. My other thing is, I think anyone who is consuming Australian music is probably doing so through Instagram. Like, when Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the artists I follow or engage with, it's mostly because I follow them online. And so I saw a lot of the Aria's through real content, through the hosts posting about it. Like, I had an Aria's feed for a couple of days, but I would never watched the show but I yeah. really enjoyed seeing it in my algorithm yeah. so for a lot of young people I think you're engaging with it through socials but that doesn't translate to a viewing audience through telly yeah you just but even with the arias I felt like I didn't really know it was on no sort there's of thing. the this marketing I mean, the, the run up that stuff was all sort of missing mm. I felt anyway before I wrap this, I also wanted to talk on Troy Sivan because he's just had a huge year. Obviously, he was the star of a very controversial TV show, The Idol. Did you watch The Idol? I didn't, but I heard all about it, and that's why you I didn't. You should watch it. Oh. <laughs> I, th- well, I think you just have to watch yeah, it to okay. understand it, to be honest. To understand how bad. I didn't love it, yeah. and I didn't finish it, but I'm glad I watched it and I appreciated elements of it, and I was curious. Like, yeah. you're just kind of watching, you're like, what is going on? Yeah, okay. But also... As he accepted solo artist, I thought it was cute that he gushed about how proud he is to be Australian and excited about the future of Australian music. And he said, Kylie and I are nominated in the same category in the Grammys, and it makes me so, so proud. That's really nice. Really cute. I also want to go back to Genesis Owosu, who won Album of the Year. When he accepted his award, he got pretty political and he said... Atrocious things are happening in the world right now, and I think that as a community, we should be putting our minds, hearts, and bodies behind to stop it at any junction we can. And that being said, ceasefire now, ceasefire now, ceasefire now, free Palestine. Slow. He also gave a shout-out to Aussie rapper Cursor. So Cursor is a big deal in the hip-hop scene and in Aussie music. I don't know Cursor. I don't listen to a lot of hip-hop and rap, to be honest, Um, (laughs) if everyone's really shocked by that. (laughs) But he's a really big deal, and Genesis, when he did his acceptance, speech as well said shout out to cursor we've never met but i appreciate everything you've done for australian hip-hop and acknowledged how successful cursor has been despite a lack of industry support there was quite a bit around that in the hip-hop scene about like australia is really far behind and there should be more support and love put into that we have a lot of talent here that's like not being given the spotlight on a side note there was another thing that happened with Cursor because he was actually nominated for an award and when they shot to the audience to show the nominees they showed the wrong person they showed like a different hip-hop star who was wearing like a balaclava and Cursor kind of lost his shit online because he wasn't even there he was like, I boycotted that event stop trying to make it look like I was there that's fucked he actually posted on his Instagram I said in 2017 I would never attend an event run by the same industry figures who tried blocking me my whole career. And then was like, fuck Arias. And then Arias had to release a statement after they showed his figure. And I don't know if they would have done that on purpose or like they were trying to get away with something there or thought that wouldn't be picked up. But surely you know someone is going to come out and have backlash about that representation. Like that's really interesting. Surely it was a mistake, but I also, I don't want to say that. Mm. Ooh, that's very gross. But yeah, a very eventful night. 
The Matildas and Socceroos have achieved a landmark new pay deal and other sporting codes should be looking closely. So in 2019, the Matildas became one of the only women's national teams in world football to sign an equal pay agreement with their respective men's team. And this was when they negotiated their first ever joint collective bargaining agreement with the Socceroos. Now, a collective bargaining agreement, which is another name for an enterprise agreement, is basically a deal made between employers and employees and their union usually about the terms and conditions of their employment. So it includes things like rates of pay, penalty rates, allowances, superannuation, hours of work. Obviously, it looks a bit different in sport because the makeup of an athlete's contract and what that includes is slightly different. But essentially, it's the terms and conditions of your employment. Mm. And you negotiate that as a group. So I was reading this ABC article that covered the CBA at the time, the collective bargaining agreement, and talked about how gender equality was like a core principle of this document in 2019, which basically introduced a revenue share payment model that increased incrementally over time. So each year the pay would go up with each team basically receiving an equal percentage of a proportion of the money they made for Football Australia in broadcasting and sponsorships and merchandising and match day revenue. So the old agreement, this was like landmark. Mm. Like this is so rare in sport because yeah. we know how unequal it is traditionally among men and men's and women's teams. This is so great. And this is the thing, like this was in 2019, this was years ago and this was before the surge that the Matildas had in mm. Australia this year. Now they've always had a really big supporter base but I think that this agreement really laid a foundation for success for both of our national teams. Now... If we consider what has happened in the world and in the sporting world and especially with the FIFA Women's World Cup and then them having to negotiate this new agreement, I think it's evidence of how the power of funding women's sport can have positive implications on that team because I'm not saying I do not want to equate their increase in popularity with the fact that they had equal pay. Like I don't think it's just the collective bargaining agreement that, that made them win the hearts of the nation and the world. Yeah. But I think that when you invest in women's sport and when you look at what's happened for, in the last few years for them, you see a structural foundation of equality that allows them to be invested in and to see themselves as equal to the Socceroos and they have thrived since. So yeah. I think it's really about setting the precedent and seeing how a lot of sporting codes are like, well, women aren't, you know, making the same amount of money. And it's like, but you're not putting the money into them to to sort of set them up for success. And to make that a viable career and it, option exactly. for, for women. Yeah, 100%. Because a lot of women's sporting teams have to do the elite athlete life part-time and then have other jobs or be studying or their parents. Like, it is difficult. Well, this is what we saw and this is why the Wallaroos spoke out, right? Yes, because the Wallaroos were saying, you know, they released a statement just after the FIFA World Cup, basically saying that a lot of the wives and or girlfriends of men's rugby players mm. were receiving better conditions than they were in terms of having accommodation and flights funded and tickets to games, whereas the Wallaroos were getting not even full-time contracts, not even a full-time coach. Yeah. You know, we're seeing a Netball Australia right now. Netball players are actually in a lengthy contract negotiation and battle with Netball Australia to try and secure better pay conditions. Mm. And they've actually seen Cricket Australia has funded $200,000 for a fighting fund for um, netball players wow. who to continue to fight for better pay conditions because while they're having these negotiations, they're not having their contract. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. I think that there's a, a lot going on in Australian sport at the moment which indicates a men's support of um, women getting better pay conditions. But I also think like, 
it's really interesting because we're not seeing that from rugby. No. And from netball, it's coming from cricketers. And so mm. I think it's really interesting, this like cross-code engagement and communication because it says that there is an appetite and a thirst for equality from everyone. It does all set a standard across Australian sport entirely. Yeah, and it's really about setting up the future of that sport. And if you want teams to succeed and if you want players to feel like they're valued, this is what you need to do. So... Now, this new contract goes even further. I I find it really interesting. Now they're really structurally addressing any other signs of inequality that have existed. So the most notable is how they get paid. Mm. Previously, there was a tiered system of payments that incrementally increased over time that players were contracted into. So you could be contracted into a specific tier depending on like how you were valued, right? Right. Those tiers were paid at a set rate, regardless of whether the players were listed to play on a specific day. So mm. you were just getting this same, no matter if how many games you played or how many match sheets you were on, mm-hmm. you got paid at this tiered rate for the entirety of the contract. Now there's no tier structure. So every player will now earn the same match payment if they make the team list, regardless of whether or not they play. Right. So the idea is to incentivise national selection and want players to want to make the team sheet. Would that be tough, though, for players that are injured, per se? I still think there's a a minimum rate that they're paid Mm -hmm. and it's more like so it's like at minimum you're earning $90,000 but if you played every match in the calendar you were earning $200,000. Right. So it incentivizes you to move up to get selected if you make the match sheet but agreed it is a bit weird for them but there is a minimum lock-in that they're protected under. Okay cool. I love this story because I think that they've really earned all of the glory and all of the success and I want this to be the model for success and set a new precedent for sport in Australia and how women's and men's teams are treated. I think it's brilliant. In my new favourite power move from the Carl Jenner conglomerate, Kim Kardashian has been named GQ's Man of the Year. Slay. How good is that? You should see the cover. She looks so hot on it. Like, I think it's the best she's ever looked. The whole shoot. Anyway, what I want to talk about is her interview as part of this cover spread because she opened up about her businesses and her family and what it was like raising her kids and I thought that was really interesting and especially the absolute firecracker that is her oldest Northwest who's about 10 years old now and she spoke about how she does try and give her kids as normal a life as possible and how like they live in a neighborhood where the kids can ride their bikes to the different cousins houses but she also noted that like her mansion does include security details and like a gated entrance and guards so she said like i understand that this is not a normal life we're never going to have a normal family life no matter what but as a parent i want to protect them as much as i can and can i just say i think kim has actually done an amazing job at protecting her kids, especially with all the drama surrounding their dad recently around Kanye West. And in the interview, she spoke about how she handles the divorce with her kids. And she says, you have to make sure you only go to a level that they understand. It's okay to show a vulnerable side, but you can never go to a negative side. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of Kardashians, but I did see an episode where she opened up more about this as well. And she was talking about how she's sort of in this protection mode all the time for her kids to try and hide everything from them and keep news outlets and media away from them when Kanye is in the news, essentially. And she spoke about how it's hard not to be able to give your kids context. So if they're like, well, why isn't dad coming to this? And like, why can't dad come for dinner? And it's like, I can't explain this to you. So now I'm the villain. Yeah. And it's really, really tough. And it's really relatable, I think, for so many families or so many mums or dads that are going through similar stuff or divorces. And that's without the added pressure of it being on a world stage and dealing with a partner that 
has bipolar disorder. Yeah, and I just think she's done a really good job of the impossible and you can really see it in the way that North, who's, you know, one of my favourite people ever on social media, to be honest, but in the way she praises her dad and speaks about her dad and just so clearly has no idea what's going on. I think that's really, really, really impressive as a parent. Absolutely, and, like, I'm very critical of the Kardashians, but I think that you can have two things exist at once where you can have all of this criticism and judgment for a lot of the things that they perpetuate. But I look at this and I think that is a brilliant parent, truly. Yeah. Because I think that, like, you know, exactly, I've been watching all this Northwest stuff and child has personality, right? Hilarious. And we'll get into that. But I think that, like, watching that and seeing North's admiration for Kanye, it proves to me Mm. how much Kim is being considered in her parenting. And I also look at that and I think... North is going to grow up and realise a lot of what her mum shielded her from. 100%. And, and it's I just, think yeah, it's it's really impressive. It's really easy to use your kids as mini therapists or involve them. And it's it's impressive that she didn't. As a child of divorce, as we, a child we know of divorce, <laughs> Maybe this was hitting a little closer to home. <laughs> Anyways, speaking of North, the thing that seems to have gotten the most attention from this article, though, is when... Kim started talking about how North runs this lemonade stand and she runs it at the end of her street and she uses it to scam people, which I just thought, this is so funny. Okay, so Kim said, North gets a huge pitcher and fills it, puts it in her wagon and goes down to the corner. She has a table and chairs and fans to keep herself cool. She makes signs. She stays out there for hours. If a random person stops, she'll only charge them like $2. If she knows you, however... She will fully scam you. I'll get calls from my friends saying she charged them $20 for a lemonade. She snatches the $20 out of their hand and says, I don't have any change. (laughs) And I just think that's like Chris has trained her well. She's just running a business. Get those profit margins up, I say. (laughs) Also, just to add to this, she actually said a few weeks ago as well that when she grows up, she wants to run both Yeezy and Skims. Like, that's her goal right now. I love that. How cute is that? And I also just want to point out that, like, just on my thing of loving this kid, she really is, like we said before, just a lesson in self-love. It's not even self-love. It's like the childlike wonder I would say just like the confidence the sheer confidence of a kid and I love listening to that because she did this interview with ID and they made it was like her first big magazine interview shoot and they asked her stuff like who is your style icon and she goes me (laughs) (laughs) and then they said what three words would you use to describe yourself and she goes um The best ever. (laughs) Icon. And they say, any hobbies? And she goes, basketball. But it's not a hobby. It's a lifestyle. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Kanye's just seeping through. There's like confidence. Child is Kanye. Then, oh, then there was this one that was like, what is your favorite memory? And she says, when I tried basketball, because I was so bad. So I now know those memories and I'm like, oh, now I'm so good. (laughs) That's self. That's a that's self development. Like she should write a book. Can I ask your take? Might be a bit rogue mm. on a ten year old doing these interviews though and being so public so soon. I know it's the mm. product of the family that she's part of, but this, I just worry that this is a quick pipeline to child star sort of off the rails being put in the spotlight too early. My thing with this is I actually don't think doing a magazine cover for someone like like ID magazine is going to be the make or break in her fame though. I think this girl is followed around by cameras Mm. her whole life. And as she said, I actually read in this interview she did with ID as well, they were like, do you like getting your picture taken? She was like, yeah, I like getting my picture taken 
like in situations like this, like she was like, I like getting my picture taken when I'm asked, but I don't like my picture taken when it's all the paparazzi. And you realise you're talking to a kid that is, this is kind of inescapable for her. Yeah. And I, I really find that distinction really interesting that as a 10 year old, she already knows like the consensual nature of what paparazzi do to her family without her mm. ability to choose Yeah, versus like electing to have her sort of brand 100%. and her personality invoked. Like, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well. Like, they've let her have social media. The really Kim and North on, TikTok Which kind account. of is a, like, debate in itself, I yeah. think. But I guess you still got to let a kid... It really humanises Kim for me because I really disliked her, but I think that through motherhood I'm like, oh, you are like you are a really good person in that in that sense and she's good at what she does really? there. Yeah. See, I've never hated the Kardashians. I've always been interested by them, if anything. But, mm. yeah, no, I just thought this was an interesting cover story. Absolutely. And she looks great on the cover. <laughs> Absolutely. Thousands of Australian students went on strike for climate on Friday, skipping school with absence certificates signed by two climate doctors. <laughs> this story is fascinating. I'm sure many people have heard of the school strike for climate who are the organisers of this protest, which is school-age students. Mm. So currently they're advocating for the federal government to make its net zero target for 2050 instead and aim for 2030. So essentially they're pushing for more immediate action on climate change, which includes an end to coal and gas projects, which Labor have been continuing to approve. They call out on their website that nine fossil fuel projects have been approved this year and $9 billion in fossil fuel subsidies to the fossil fuel industry have occurred this year alone too. So there were at least nine locations for these strikes to take place last Friday, which included Melbourne, Sydney and Mm. Brisbane. Mm. Now, the letter is the interesting piece that a lot of media has picked up on because it's from two Australian climate scientists from the University of Melbourne and ANU who have written this climate doctor's certificate that students can (laughs) use when they put down their pens and leave class for this sick day to strike. So the letter basically says the student is unfit for school due to a major climate health concern, notes their elevated stress and feelings of despair on seeing the impacts of climate change. The letter concludes, it is my recommendation that they take a sick day to protest for a sick planet. I also found this very funny. I was reading the post from the Daily Oz on the day of the strike and essentially the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, was asked about the strike and she had this like quite, you know, empathetic, like, I understand why young people are concerned and just reiterated Labor's current commitments. And then on the tile the Daily Oz have put up, they've immediately gone to the position of the Education Minister, Jason Clare, and it was just this statement that read, school students should be at school during school hours. <laughs> Fuck off, loser, is my take to that. Like, yeah. how boring. Like, come on. I just think this is so incredible to watch. And I you listen to these kids getting interviewed and they are so articulate. Yep. And they are so passionate. Passionate and as they should be. And I love this story. I think it's a brilliant story. And I know that this, what I'm about to talk about, sits slightly separately. But I want to use this as a discussion to talk briefly about another push from young people in the climate space, which is the duty of care bill that was tabled by independent Senator David Pocock. Now, the bill was sort of introduced to Parliament in July, but right now they're sort of seeking a lot of signatories and support from young people around the country to try and get this bill over the line. And the duty of care bill that was introduced would require require decision makers to consider the health and well-being of current and future generations when making significant decisions that could contribute to more harmful climate change, 
including decisions about approving and financing fossil fuel projects. So it's basically, again, a duty of care to consider the impact on young people that all of these climate decisions have. Mm. And the climate activist behind the bill is Anjali Sharma, who was the lead litigant in a group of teenage school students who brought a class action on behalf of all Australian children in the federal court in 2020. They basically sued the environment minister, Susan Lay, at the time. And basically they argued this duty of care. And initially they won. And then the federal court, full bench of the federal court, overturned it. At the time it was a world-first conclusion. It was a world-first decision. And it was like devastating when it was overturned because it literally imposed this duty that when they were approving any fossil fuel project, they had to consider the harm and the impact on the future generations, future children of Australia. It just isn't that much of an ask. No, it doesn't seem like it. I think that what this bill is doing is kind of the next step because they've sort of failed on this singular pathway in the federal court. Now can we introduce it through parliament, make it a statute? Mm. So that's kind of what's happening. And I I actually signed um, the petition to support the bill last week because I was just like, it's so impressive what these people are doing. And I'm actually friends with the activists. I've just met her a few times recently. And honestly, the work is just so impressive to be a school student at the time and suing the environment minister in the federal court. Like, it's incredible what these kids are doing. I I feel like young people don't feel like their voices are being heard. And I think that they're continuing to fight. And I just think it's so impressive. So good for them. Good for them. Good for all of us. Good for all of us. The number of GPs bulk billing their patients has halved over the course of just one year, according to new reports. This is terrible news when nine in ten Australians visit a GP every year. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so first of all, just to explain what bulk billing is. Pretty much the point of bulk billing is that instead of charging the patient for the appointment, the doctors could receive payment from Medicare directly. So the Royal College of General Practitioners report stated that only 12% of GPs bulk billed all of their patients in 2023, compared with 24 who reported doing so back in 2022. Meanwhile, 30% of GPs who bulk billed the majority of their payments was down from 40% last year. So the cost is also going up for those who are charging their patients directly. Just This year, about $75 was the average cost for a standard consultation lasting less than 20 minutes, with Medicare then giving back around 40. But this is an increase from last year where the average consultation fee was about $64. So now seeing your GP is now on average $10 more expensive than it was last year. Jesus. Also, the number of GPs charging over $85 for a consultation has doubled in the last year, which especially sucks when people are also feeling the pinch of the lack of bulk billing. So why is this happening? I think it's increasing financial pressures. What Medicare does is it does cap how much it reimburses GPs determined by a patient's age, their location, their consultation type. And Medicare rebates have not risen or like kept up with the rise of inflation. So as a result, GPs are not able to keep up with out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, okay. I thought it was interesting as well that the report also said that we shouldn't be blaming GPs for this rise of cost. They said GPs are expected to prop up a systematically underfunded health system. I also read that doctors who contributed to the report also reported a decrease in job satisfaction with 70% of GPs experiencing burnout this year. I get that. I get that it's not really the individual practitioner that should be blamed for this 
overall system issue, right? It's mm. a structural problem. But I also get that, like, from my perspective, I've gone to the doctor a lot of times this year, more than other years, um, just to check in and try to do, like, a lot of skin checks and get better with my overall health. Yeah. But now, the last three months, I've been avoiding it because of how much it's costing. No, same. Like, my doctor is, like, 85 a consultation. And yes, you get some of it back on Medicare, but that's, like, a frightening upfront cost. Yes. That you just don't want to – you don't have factored in – to your weekly budget. Yeah. And also, like, a lot of the time it is a 10-minute consult where I'm going in about a particular issue that could be related to, like, okay, for example, like, you know, my period or my contraceptive or things, and it cost me a lot of money to go in and be like, oh, we'll just see how it is in three months. And I'm yeah. not really getting an outcome or I'm getting a prolonged comeback in a week or come and do this testing. Yeah. And so then you're just going doubling and tripling the cost. A hundred percent. Or what I do is I go, oh, I should probably see a doctor about that, but I'll wait till I have like two or three things Same. to visit the doctor for. And then you forget and you delay and it's not really promoting overall health and wellness no. and actually trying to get shit sorted. No. Okay, now we are at the Q&A section for this week. We have a question here that we wanted to do that kind of... In, they say here, that's not our usual content, but we thought this would be kind of fun and maybe we could, if people like this, do more of these mixed in. But we had someone send in, and I'll keep it anonymous. Hi, guys. No, this isn't your usual content, but was looking for some sensible advice. <laughs> uh, hoping you get that here. <laughs> <laughs> not with me. Thank you. I want to decline being a bridesmaid for a good friend of mine because I don't really like her partner or think they should get married. Yeah. And so this is interesting because I'm I'm interested in usually seeing bridesmaid content or wedding content that's around like the financial burden of being involved in these yeah. things. And I really find it interesting a values-based rejection. Like I don't think you're a good fit. Or well, this... this is what I mean. I don't think we have enough information here. That's where I was going to go immediately. That's too. like I need to know what this guy has done. Yeah. Like has he done something? or you're just like I don't mesh with him yeah because I think that I think that being invited to be a bridesmaid is about being there for a friend and being an important person in their life that they want you to stand next to them on their big day right in saying that though if you're gonna spend a small fortune which being a bridesmaid is you're not gonna stand next to something if you don't morally align with it agree I think it's really dependent on what makes this person not the right fit for your friend if it's you know he's cheated or you think that he is engaging in really bad behaviour in his personal life, I just want to know the severity of the bad fit. If it's yeah. something like you don't respect all of his political views, I think that that is up to your friend to make a decision on. I think that what it comes back to is the balance between your ability to say, well, that doesn't really align with my values and remove yourself from the situation versus whether you want to be there for your friend. Yes. The other thing I find interesting about this is that if I had a friend that I knew did not like the guy I was marrying, I probably wouldn't make her a bridesmaid. So my other question is, have you not voiced this with your friend at all? Like, is this coming out of nowhere if you talk to your friend about this? Also, secondary to that, I would suggest to this person that if they really feel that strongly, they need to tell their friend why. But then do you get removed from the wedding as an invited guest altogether? But if you feel strongly enough about not being a bridesmaid and that's a big deal to be asked and clearly you're important to this person, you owe them the conversation. I agree. I think that if you're going to have this like really values-driven feeling and decision, you need to communicate that clearly mm. because you can't sort of get years down the line and then do like an I told you so moment or something. You need to be asserting like how you feel and why now and having that conversation. And coming from your – like I think if you have this conversation with your friend, which I think you should, is saying – why you don't agree with this and why that's in the best interest for her and not coming from a just a, 
I have an issue way. Yeah, because I would rather someone assert that to me and me say, okay, like we're sort of misaligned friendship-wise or I need to hear this out for the reasons you have because I also don't want someone standing next to me faking it. No. I would prefer I would prefer to someone to be honest to their values and tell me and then we part ways than to be lying and standing there the whole time feeling uncomfortable. I agree and I also think I'd feel hurt if a good friend of mine was telling everyone but me mm-hmm. how she felt about my husband today. Yeah. I just think if you're approaching this conversation clearly understand your reasons why and make the distinction between his bad behavior and just something misaligning with you personally Mm. because I think that it's about what we value in relationships and I I would like to know more concretely what the problem is and I want you to consider how you communicate that with your friend so that can be in a kind and constructive way yes good luck good luck (laughs) toughy Thank you guys so much for listening again this week. Please, if you have any thoughts, feelings, questions, feedback, please send us a message on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.